Pick a boy born and raised in New Jersey on Springsteen and a Southern California beach bum raised in the 60s and what do you get? Do what you like with Tom Cavanaugh and Bob Telford. Welcome to another episode of Do What You Like, and as always, I am joined by my illustrious partner and co-conspirator in this whole thing, Mr. Tom Cavanaugh, who's in New Jersey. I'm in uh, California here. Uh, I'm Bobby T. All righty, Tom, how are things in New Jersey today? Uh, it's a little cold, but it's promising. How are you oh, out there? Geez. A little cold, that's old news. Give me something new, something different. The sun came out, right? Uh, the sun came out for a little bit this morning and ran away. Uh, our COVID numbers are up, so we're all inside on Zoom again. Nobody's yeah. talking to anybody in person. We're all wearing masks. It's status quo for the 21st century. Sounds like a great day in the neighborhood as far as I'm concerned. And I'm so excited because we got a really fun guest today that I just, when I saw his bio, I just, it blew me away. I thought, oh my God, this guy's done everything. So um, without further ado, let me introduce this gentleman. Uh, today's guest is a high, as he spent his high school summers uh, in summer stock acting and directing along with all the other jobs summer theater requires, such as stage managing, set construction, lighting design, etc. Even teaching service then because his earliest memory is of writing the name Constantine S. Stanislavski on a blackboard in front of bewildered children's theater apprentices. During his college years at Columbia University, he made his off-Broadway debut as an actor and assistant director at the Sheridan Square Playhouse in a repertory theater whose director first introduced him to Lee Strasberg and the Actors Studio. He was unable to attend his graduation, having been appointed by the Queen Elizabeth II Arts Council to serve as a resident actor and director of the Canterbury Theatre Company in Christchurch, New Zealand, that country's first international professional theatre where he worked with actors from all over the UK. As a 22-year-old American, it was a challenge, it was challenging to direct actors whose previous director had been Laurence Olivier. His teaching continued in New Zealand, where he also served as director of the Experimental Theater Laboratory of the Christchurch Academy of Dramatic Arts. Try saying that three times fast the country's first training academy. He's conducted group acting classes and private coaching for actors for over 25 years in New York and is thrilled that so many of his students have gone on to successful, successful careers on Broadway, film, and television. Please welcome Anthony Apeson to Do What You Like. Welcome, Anthony. Welcome, Tony. Hello. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you. So, Tommy, I'm going to let you jump. I'm going to let you jump in on this. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Anthony. I just wanted to add one thing to uh, to that bio because it was so special, and um, it involved young people. And that is uh, my uh, several years at uh, the high school of performing arts. Uh, that was very special. Well, uh, that that that's a major point. Is it's one of the things that matches up with the movement of this show and a movement that's going in 
right now in the 21st century due to lockdown, due to pandemic. People are having this great awakening. They're waking up. They're saying, you know what? I hate this job, but I love doing this. And they quit the job they hate and they embrace the job they love. So we're going to jump back and forth. I want to hear some of the, but now that you brought up School of Performing Arts in line with this show, you made that decision to walk away from an established high school career, high school job in a system. And how did it happen? Did one day you just wake up and say, you know what? I'm going to start my own studio, say goodbye to this structured life and go out on a limb because there's a lot of self-started studios in New York, but none with this track record, a few with these successes, but you're not. You also not a line them and line them up and sign them up organization. You audition everybody. Not everybody gets in. Not everybody stays. There are times when you ask people to leave. That's sometimes unheard of because usually there's some other ones that grab the cash and run. So, what made you make that decision to say goodbye to the New York public school system and say I'm going out on my own? Well, you know. Uh- I was there for seven years, and uh, by that time I had tenure. And your question, Tom, is very related to the questions I got uh, at the school from other teachers, uh, which boiled down essentially to, "You have tenure and you're quitting." <laughs> they literally <laughs> not wrap their minds around that. Um, okay, there was. I'll give you a symptom and then I'll give you the cause. Great. Great. Uh, The teacher's uh, cafeteria uh, is where one of these symptoms occurred. I was standing in line uh, for whatever I was going to have for lunch. And there was one of the academic teachers in front of me. As you know, uh, the fame schools divided into uh, half a days in studio and half a days in academics, and uh, those two separate faculties, pretty much. And I believed that we had been—I knew we were being entrusted with very special kids. But there were some academic teachers, particularly, not all, but there were some that I felt were uh, not worthy of being privileged to be entrusted with that kind of talent at such a young age. And so I started to call to myself some of those academic teachers that I I felt were not stimulating minds, but rather just trying to beat them into submission. To myself, I would call them child killers. And so one day I found myself standing in line behind one of the worst ones. There was no joy in the teaching. He had just put in enough years to get tenure, and he wasn't there because he loved it. He was there because he wanted his pension. And I just started, I was standing right behind him, and I just started snorting like a pig. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't know why it was that particular animal, but I just started, I mean, aggressively, aggressively snorting at him. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, maybe... (laughs) Maybe it's time for a change. <laughs> but uh, but I do also want to say that there was a, a profound change uh, that occurred at the school because uh, the last two years uh, of my career there 
were spent in a totally new building. Right. Uh, High School Performing Arts was a very old, old building built in the Civil War, if I remember, to house draft resistors. And um, is that the building that was used in the original movie? Have we seen that building? The exterior you were allowed to the see. Exterior, the exterior, so we know it. I know there's a plaque there on a building that, where it used to be. Yeah, now it's a plaque. But um, what that old, old building had was uh, only 600 students. It was old. It was idiosyncratic, as were the students and the teachers. And it was so intimate. We had 200 actors, 200 uh, dancers, and 200 musicians. That was it. Wow. And as you know, it achieved a great deal of success. But no, I agree. But you did something there that I've only heard of. I don't know this production, and I've never seen anybody else do. You took a group of high school performers to England to perform in London, and I've never seen that. I've never seen any high school as, and I and I did high school theater for eight eight years, and in those. And watched other high schools with predominant theater companies. Nobody's ever done that. What was that's a major achievement? What was that about? Well, let, let me go back to the. It's connected to the building, believe it or not. Still, okay. Uh, what what I was what I was uh, starting to identify was that, and this is typical, sadly, of uh, some bureaucracies, performing arts or PA, as we called it. It wasn't broke. So it didn't need to be fixed. Uh, so they decided to fix it and take those 600 dancers, actors, musicians out of that building, which had so much atmosphere and so much history and so many memories. And to take another, I, I forget how many, but over thousands of students from music and art. And those were the visual artists, the singers. And they brought, built a brand new shiny building at Lincoln Center and we were all, we were mushed together. Um, no longer an intimate school in a charming old building with atmosphere, but now uh, a student body in the thousands in a sterile building with no atmosphere. Mm. That was, that honestly contributed, not just snorting like a pig, but that was the start <laughs> of it. But there was such a loss of, of atmosphere. I, I wish bureaucracy sometimes understood that that's a thing too. So you, but you, you, at some point, when did you say, and, and what was the decision process for you on this part that I'm going to go private and, and, and build my own studio? It was, it, it's what I do. <laughs> it's like, uh, were you afraid in stepping away from the system? I I wasn't as afraid as they seemed to think I should be like those people who would say, but you have tenure. <laughs> say, <laughs> That yeah. fearlessness that we all need to have. But, uh, yeah, I guess it was an act of faith. But, and I, don't, I know this one's probably going to sound very uh, self-serious, but I really uh, have to do this. this I, I don't have a choice. And it's morphed. I mean, it's the same it that's uh, it presented when I was very, very little as an actor. It's still dealing with, with acting, whether... I'm doing it or other ones are. So it was inevitable. L listen, you're looking at a guy uh, who started not one, oh no, but two theater companies, one in DC, one in New York. I, you know, if it ain't, 
if it ain't there, then I, I'm going to make it there. Oh, it sounds like New York, New York. <laughs> no, 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 because you were all over the world and uh, directed all over the world, taught all over the world, and performed all over the world. So you were saying as a child, when did the light bulb go on as a child? When I asked my mother for tap dancing lessons. Oh, Do you remember yeah. what brought that on? I think I might have seen tap dancing on TV, like the Ed Sullivan show. Sure. And I, it seemed like, yeah, <laughs> I want to do that. I want to jump back, though, for a second. Sure. Keep track, which at 76 is not always easy. Uh, we did not perform in London. Uh, we were brought to uh, Manche Manchester. Manchester, okay. Now, it's possible we performed in London, and I'm just so old, and it was so long ago, I can't remember. But my, my belief was we were in Manchester. Why did we go to Manchester? Not because of me, but because the, the school was so famous by that time. Oh, okay. You remember, it was, it was already well-known, but it was well-known within a certain circle. But then the movie came out, and then that if that weren't enough, then the TV series came out. And one of our own kids, current students, was on that series. And then it became unbelievable, the worldwide interest in PA. Got it. And so then we would get invitations. And, then, and, and so we, we would have delegations. We had a delegation from Japanese FM radio come. We had camera crews from all over the world who would come there, be allowed in for a little bit. And one of the things that came in was an invitation from Manchester. Wow. That's how we ended up there. So, so uh, Anthony, I have a question. Um, how, I mean, obviously you, you had wonderful successes here in the U.S. How did the international, the exposure to you internationally, the, the opportunities that were offered to you abroad, how did those, some of those come about? Like working with Grotowski and, and then going off to New Zealand and all that. Um, I mean, was it one of those things where your reputation preceded you? And <laughs> no, <laughs> no, and oh my God, that would be the kiss of death for me if my reputation preceded. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to keep some of that out <laughs> out of the public eye. Um, let me just say, the '60s were a colorful and passionate time. Ah, yes, I know. So, for example, um, I was in New Zealand. And the way I got to New Zealand was I auditioned for this international theater company. They sent they sent uh, the artistic director all around what they call the English speaking world to audition actors uh, and find directors and set designers. They knew that they had very little of their own resources. So they sent them to Australia, they sent them to Canada, they sent them to America. Uh, can't remember where else. And um, so I, I, and I saw this ad, uh, I guess it was in backstage yeah. uh, to audition to go to New Zealand. I just applied. Wow. And uh, I was, tw I was 21 at the time. No kidding. I didn't know that. And yeah, cause I, I realized you were so young when I applied and auditioned for them, I was still at Columbia. I, I had not even graduated yet. They, uh, in their madness, I think partly because I had already been a director and I was an actor and they needed everything. They needed directors, as I said, lighting design. Um, and so uh, I found myself on a, an Air New Zealand plane 
the day I think I was meant to graduate. Wow. But that's how that happened. That's what started that. And then in New Zealand, I read about Grotowski. Uh, I wrote to Grotowski, and then we started to, I don't know. But the very next year, I felt I was in Paris, not in Paris, I was in Aix-en-Provence working with Grotowski for my, the first time. Wow. What was that like? What was he like? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I, from what I've read, I mean, because obviously I don't know him personally, but from what I've read, he's he's quite a character. Well, first of all, he's a dead character. Yeah. Uh, and second of all, he, um, what people d- didn't understand, he, he could be very severe looking. He always wore dark glasses, but not because he was affected, but because he was legally blind. Uh-huh. Um, but he, um, he actually was a very, very funny guy. Very funny. Um, we became very close. Um, and um, that's what a lot of people don't know about him. Is he's very funny. There's a way, you know, that the people who are very, very serious, uh, mm-hmm. the funniest right. of all. What was amazing was that he uh, was very, very ill, had been di- diagnosed uh, with some form of, I forget what it was a form of cancer, maybe or leukemia. I can't remember now. But even as a little boy, I think he was a teenager. Uh, he'd been in and out of treatment, and uh, he spoke of how uh, one day he uh, bumped into one of his doctors from when he had been last in the hospital, and the doctor looked, reacted as if he had seen a ghost. So wow. little hope had the doctor had wow. that he would survive. And yet he he lived uh, into his sixties. Yeah, yeah. But, what was uh, a, a day like in his studio in his class? Was well, the, the point I, I wanted to follow up yeah. on in terms of his personality, which will lead to that, Tom, is um, that when you come very very close to death, uh, especially when you're young, you supposedly have your whole life before you. You come out of that. You survive that. But you come out of it with a, a, a tremendous zeal to make every minute count. And nobody worked like uh, Grotowski worked. Mm-hmm. You, Why is that? What does that mean? He would throw, you, you threw away the clock. You know, there are times when he would call upon me and I would go meet him and we would do some kind of a project together. But he hardly ever slept. He was... Really? But, and I believe part of that was his passion and his dedication. But armchair psychologist, part of me believes that it was because he uh, he knew the value of time and how little there was, and he didn't want to waste anything. But, I mean, uh, I got back from, we were doing some crazy thing in the forest of Poland or somewhere, and I got back, and uh, there he was. <laughs> like three in the morning, there he was. Okay, so listen. Wow. Uh, but wonderful man, uh, very, he, he was, uh, I felt as about only my father, what I say was I closer to, uh, in terms of an older guy. Right. Right. Wonderful man. Was, you, was, you, yes, that, go on. no, no. Was, was the work based on script? Was the work based on workshop? Like we know it, was it, here's uh, an idea. You know, there's a, a very famous moment in Stanislavski's career when, he changed his mind and he went from uh, having uh, affective memory, 
emotional memory as what he called the cornerstone of his technique to calling it the last resort. And that's when he went from the use of the real of past only to also saying, you know what, what about the imagination? What about physical action? Well, Grotowski also went through a watershed kind of a moment, but certainly more of of a transition than just a moment. But when I met him, he was world famous for his productions uh, that were touring all over the world. The Constant Prince, um, uh, Acropolis, Apocalypsis, Configuris. And even though those had been arrived at through a lot of collective work, uh, they were nonetheless structured performances with a beginning and a middle and an end and with an audience. Hmm. They, they were, uh, even though they were not traditionally arrived at, nor were they traditionally, they weren't performed by traditional actors, uh, because as you know, Grotowski's actors training revolutionized actor training, but they still were performed, even though the set was minimal and the lighting was very, very stark and the audience was seated differently for each production because each production had a total uh, environmental component. So for example, with the Constant Prince was limited to, I don't know, 40 people and everybody had to like look over a fence kind of as if they were peeping in on something uh, uh, not to be seen. Uh, But nonetheless, they were still pieces. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Middle and an end. The lights would come up. Generally, people would sit there and stun silence for a couple of minutes. But then he went from the theatrical to what he called the paratheatrical. And that arose out of a feeling that he wanted to impact both actor and audience in a more immediate way. Mm-hmm. That's a right. very, very crude summation of a very long and complex process. But that meant that the next piece he did, which I was involved in, was the very first of his paratheatrical events, occurred not in a performance space, but in a forest outside Philadelphia. Wow. You talked about the interaction between the theater, uh, between the actors and the audience. He, I think, didn't he write in, in his book uh, that he wrote that theater should not, because it could not compete against the overwhelming spectacle of film and should instead focus on the very root of the act of theater, which is actors co-creating the event of theater with its spectators. That is that, uh, am I correct in that? Uh, well, you know, this is a, because it's true. I mean, you know, that's the thing is, is it's just it's 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 so true that that's the one thing that I've always found as an actor. The difference between acting for film and television versus theater is, is that immediacy that comes from the interaction between the actor and the audience. Uh, um, well, it, it depended on the on the piece, first of all. Right. Uh, what, oh, the entire concept of audience was dispensed with when he moved into the paratheatrical phase. Right. There was, as I said, I was involved with the first one. And um, 
at one moment I started laughing hysterically because we, it was like three in the morning and we were out in the forest and we were doing all sorts of crazy shit. It was, it was very profound. I don't mean to, to trivialize it, but I started laughing because I thought at one point, what if the New York Times reviewer was here for this? <laughs> it was just because it was so completely beyond. We were no longer in theatrical, as I say, there's now the power theatrical. There was no audience. Right. Uh, you, you know, I want to jump back to something you said with regards to your departure from the uh, the uh, 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 high school for performing arts. Um, how do you, as a teacher, avoid falling into that cynicism? The the I've been here so long, I don't care anymore. I'm, it's all about the the tenure. How how do you, as a teacher, avoid those trappings? Oh, very simple. Uh, it's just a one word: Satan. I have sold it? my soul to Satan. <laughs> <laughs> but do you wake up every day? You- this is what you got to do. This is what you want to do. And it, it, you and do come not, across as being happy about it still. Happy, it's not got to do. It's not have to do. It's want to do. There you go. That's the difference. Right. And, See, and, and, and really, you know, one really, of the things, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just, I always say to the actors, you know, you can't teach appetite. Uh, I, it's I, with me, it's even beyond appetite. Uh, I got, I have to do this. Do you and find I, it? Yeah. I think about it like uh, before class, I'm preparing. After class, you can ask my wife. I go over, oh, I should have done that instead. And then then I'm sending people notes uh, about it. And I don't take credit for that. That's just in my DNA. Right. Do, do you find as a teacher that there are times within the, 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 the classes where you as a teacher are learning something as a result of the my experience? God. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I think that's the key to the difference between the cynic, the cynic and, and the, the person that's still adventurous and still excited every day is, is that you're open and, and, and receptive and you embrace the, the experience, whatever that experience may be, failure, success, whatever. And by the way, how could you not learn when every fucking one of them is a different human being? Exactly. exactly. Which means that you're going to have to come up with a different maybe way of unlocking or developing that talent. Right. Now, you, is that something you developed over the years? years? That's why Stanislavski said no recipes, whatever works. Right. And if Which there were no recipes. Is, is a great, can, can finish that, great can analogy. I, can I finish my, my thought? Yeah, please? sure. No recipes means no recipes for human beings, right. nor how to develop and even inspire their talent and at the moment you think there is you're fucked not only are you fucked you're dangerous and you're a menace what do you think that moment is that somebody decides okay i'm going to push him in this direction what does that mean that moment oh i i think when uh as bob said earlier when when they start to feel a little weary and it never was a a job of passion it was a job job and then, who knows? I mean, I, 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 I thank God I, I don't know. You don't this. have it. Yeah, you don't have it. But you just don't have it. I would it. assume that I saw this a lot uh, amongst the, uh, as I said earlier, the academic teachers at PA. Uh, 
this was probably stuff we shouldn't include in the podcast because I don't want to make anyone feel bad. No. Okay. They know who they are. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that if you if you don't start as a teacher with appetite, then what are you starting with? You, you're starting with, I don't know, uh, a desire for job security or uh, I don't know what it is. But without appetite, the amount of energy you're putting out day after day, week after week, year after year, if you want to get your pension, <laughs> without appetite, you start to diminish without replenishment. It's just empty calories after a while. If you start to have a, a hole where you should have a pile. Yeah, yeah. This is me speculating. And and this is something that's that's been in you, or is this something that was instilled in you by some of the, you know, I mean, obviously you've had the opportunity to interact with Strasberg, Clerman, you know, Gortowski, all those people. Um, is that something that you got from your experiences with them, or is that something that you've always had in you? Oh, both. Yeah. Really? They were mutually provocative, but I arrived with this in me. Uh, why? Why did I seek those people out? Because I wanted to. I wanted to not study with the guy who studied with the woman who studied with. I wanted to mainline and study right. with those people that I believed were giants. You, you wanted the real deal, and I, yes, and I didn't want any kind of uh, second or third hand version of that deal. And that's and I that's what I did. Now, why did I do that? I had no resources, but I did have appetite. I wanted to learn from the few folks that I believed were living giants in this art form. Right. And you don't do that unless you're hungry. Right. So um, you're you're, you're, but before Grotowski, it was Strasbourg, right? Oh my God! Yeah, I was still in college when I was exposed to the Actors Studio. And what was that experience like? Because that was considered some of their founding days after Group Theater when he took it over complete, right? Well, that was back in the 50s. Right. And that's almost, they considered that their golden era, their heyday. When I was, when I was exposed to the studio, I was about 21, same around the same time I uh, was appointed to New Zealand. Wow. The, the act, the off-Broadway debut that we have spoken of Right. The founder and the director of that project was a member of the actor's studio. And that is, and she's basically trained us according to Lee. And then it was she who brought us, well, brought me uh, to the studio. That's how I even knew about it. I, I had no idea there was such a thing. Nor had I ever seen a scarier guy than Strasburg. Well, it, it, that's not just legend, right? He was scary when he had to be, right? Oh, my God. There, there were videos. But when we were live, I would show them. We have some clips of Lee losing his shit. And you get, you get very, boom. Oh, oh. And what was the what was the positive you came out of Strasburg in the studio? that Because you had this amazing ability to watch the talent and know where to ask the right questions. Does that come from studio or is that a conglomerate? That, that comes from Stella, Lee, Harold, Grutowski, oh. Herman, for, for sure. Because before I was exposed to those people, I, I didn't ask any questions at all. I just acted. Uh -huh. uh, what, I, what I saw 
but I was exposed to the studio through uh, Terry Hayden, that was her name, at this uh, off-Broadway venture was, and then it was re reaffirmed uh, at the studio, was for the first time in my life, seeing people take acting really seriously. Okay, I got you. Until then, you know, I did stock all the time. I was doing musical comedy. Uh, I had I, I had a, a, a sense of and a drive towards something deeper, but it was the first time with Terry uh, that I was made to sit in a chair and relax, which is foundation of the, of the method, really, and to realize, oh snap, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not just oh, we everybody knew by that time. Training means uh, fencing and singing and whatever. Right, but right, to, right. to just not fence, but to not be tense. Wow. And when was it during this period that you started the edge towards directing and yes. being on the other side of the stage? It was at the studio, or was that further on? I, I directed at the Off-Broadway. I was an AD for one of their projects. Uh, oh, okay. Terry Hayden, Off-Broadway. And then I was a director on another project. Um, and, and were you able to make that move to, from studio to bring those skills at, to that project? Or in no, that effect? No, no, no. Not at all, right? <laughs> I so, so, so there's something to be, there's something we got to say, because we know directing now as you use what you learned in acting class to make the actor better. But at that time, that was foreboding almost, right? It was not heard of. I don't know. Did you take the techniques from the teachers and try to put them on stage, or you couldn't? Let me see. Oh, you're asking me to go back a ways now. I know, um, but it's a good question, man. <laughs> the, um, what, when I got back from New Zealand, which was 1968, I started the first of two theater companies. This was DC or New York? Uh, New York. First that was New York. And, and 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 which one was it? Was it uh, was this Ensemble Theater Laboratory or no? Yes, yes. That, that is that one. Uh, we had we had two floors. We had the basement and the cellar, mm -hmm. and there was one window in the basement, and it was at street level, like we were below. And so, if you looked out the window, you saw people's ankles. Right. Um, but. Uh, and as you see, it was called the Ensemble Theater Laboratory because I had just come from working with Gurotovsky. And, and I was very excited because Terry and the studio started me thinking about acting a little bit more seriously. And then it was in 68 that I went and worked with Gurotovsky. And oh, my God, because it satisfied a desire for something deeper than just taking it seriously. Also, it was heavily infused with a spiritual mm -hmm. patient that uh, that the actor is uh, is giving almost like communion, and because Grotowski was, you know, very heavily uh, influenced. Partially by the Catholic Church, Poland is like 90-something percent. My first time working with him, uh, he went uh, back to India. And so, yes, he had Catholicism in him, but he also had uh, a, a kind of a Hindu spirituality. Uh, mm. 
and uh, and I actually I wrote an article if you're interested uh, yeah. for the Village Voice uh, upon my return from Aix-en-Provence, which is where the, was where I first worked with Grotowski. I wrote an article. Forget how that happened, um, but it's it, it was in 1968, and um, I believe. The last line of that article was he left the next day for India. So this it it was it was spiritual, but it was not uh, doctrinal. Mm. Wow, that was an incredible episode, wouldn't you say, Tommy? Oh, yeah, this was a great episode. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we had such a good time, and there is such a wealth of information and history here that. We're going to have our first ever two-part interview. So please. Yeah, get on it because there's going to be more of Anthony. So More of Anthony and then just click on to the next episode and this interview is continued. That's right. Thank you all for listening. Tommy, Thanks, it's everybody. good to talk Thanks, to you Bob. again. Thanks. And we will do this once again soon. All right. Uh, yep, we're coming back. <laughs>